everyone, and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on social media by searching Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, and we'll pop up, and at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. You can also please follow, like, subscribe, whatever you're, wherever you're listening, whatever you can do to make sure that you're keeping up with all of our new content. That would be super helpful. And also, while you're at it, why not leave a rating or review? Anything you can do, we appreciate you. So all that said, uh, today's episode is going to be an interesting one, I think. Um, <clears throat> it is uh, an end of an era, so to speak. I am actually working on reformatting the Medium Cool episode thing, right? And we are going to be moving on to kind of a, a three-tiered formatting system. I don't know. I'm kind of making shit up right now. But the point is, um, I, I have like some formatting styles, templates, whatever, for solo shows, for shows where I have recurring guests like Joe or uh, Matt Sosi, Jake Badalieri, people like that that come on kind of semi-regularly to regularly. And then, uh, you know, with the one-off guests, like when I had, for example, Robert Muggy on, that was kind of a one-off thing that we had planned, not to say he'll never be back on, but I'm just saying that was kind of a, a, a one-off thing where I was kind of introducing this character and, and interviewing them to an extent while also just trying to have a conversation. So I have different formatting things for uh, templates, I'll say. So I'm not searching for words, but I have different formatting templates for that that I'm going to try to stick to. So I thought I'd share those with you first, and this will kind of lead into what today's content is. Uh, and yeah, I'll go from there. So first, for solo shows where it's just me doing like what I'm doing today, I actually intentionally did this by myself. I could have had a guest, but I decided to do this by myself to try to give this a shot. And uh, for solo shows, I will cover one to two movies tops is the plan. Not to say I'll never go above that, knowing me, but uh, one to two is kind of the plan. And yeah, each movie should be covered uh, with content of substance. And that's really what I've started to get a little self-conscious about, to be honest, uh, because, you know, we're nearing 100 episodes. Next week is our 100th episode, dude. That's like a, a big kind of milestone for us. And so we've done 100 episodes, and this whole thing, you know, Medium Cool, a movie podcast, brought me back to film in many ways, where I had been wanting to come back, but I just didn't have a reason to put watching movies and stuff over the other parts of my life that were taking time, uh, and maybe had more motivation or more of a reason to be there. And so what ended up happening uh, was I started this podcast, and I had uh, my buddy Joe Shearer, who helped me with a lot of the early episodes, and uh, this really just turned into a passion project where I got to watch a movie or some movies during a week, and then I got to talk about them again, which had been a few years prior to this uh, to this podcast before I'd since I'd really done that to any kind of uh, notable level, I guess. So what I want to do with this is I you know it's fun to just sit and talk and ramble about movies and geek out but I also want to bring in some of my past uh, where I did a lot of research on movies and I did uh, a lot of analysis of movies and things like that and I would like to try to bring some of that in whether it's historical or cultural political you know whatever the analysis is kind of bring some of that in to give you some context on the film and also uh, you know one movie should only take me about 10 to 20 minutes so to be honest uh, the episodes will probably be significantly shorter on average, at least if it's a solo episode. So you got to think it's 10 to 20 minutes. Uh, it could be 20 to 40 minutes if I did two movies, and that's about it. 
so we'll, we'll see how that plays out. I have different kind of solo columns, as I'm calling them, as if they were in a newspaper or something. Uh, but some columns, so to speak, or, or, or series uh, that I would like to do, and that might help with that as well. But anyway, so that's if I'm solo. Now, for new movies, like from the current year, so in this case 2022, I'm going to try to have a guest on to you know, talk through a movie with me because I'm going to have less historical relevance. I'm going to have uh, the movie could also just be terrible. And a lot of the solo movies I'm going to be doing are kind of talking about really great movies, you know, um, which is something I, I want to, uh, to work with. So, you know, I'm going to be working with that. But if I have a brand new movie, uh, you know, sometimes I don't watch it just because I know it's going to be good or I think it's going to be bad or whatever. Uh, I watch it because I get a screener for it or I have an opportunity to see it. And then I bring someone else on that's seen it and we talk about it good or bad. And so I'm allotting a little bit more time for that, not only because we'll have a second or third voice involved in those conversations, but also because, um, you know, I can be long winded when I'm talking to other people. So I gave myself a little more time. So sue me. Uh, but with uh, most new films, like I said, you know, they don't really have much of a legacy upon release. Uh, sometimes they have, uh, you know, something to talk about at length. But, you know, uh, I'd imagine it'd be more fun with someone else. So that's kind of the plan if I have a guest that's recurring, like Joe Shearer. Now, with uh, with one-off guests, like I said, with Robert Muggy or someone like that, uh, I will dedicate a full hour at least, I think that's acceptable. 60 to 90 minutes, probably, like I normally do. Granted, I usually go over that, so I'm really going to try to bring that down. And again, try to keep it more substantial. And, uh, you know, that's where I stand. And I, I plan to do some columns, like uh, some of my cinema blind spots, which I started on um, the film app. Actually, I had a Cinema Blind Spots column. I thought about picking that back up, something similar or reminiscent of that, where I find movies that are really popular, really famous for one reason or another that I have not seen before, and then I can talk about them in the Cinema Blind Spots uh, column. We'll see if I do something like that. Another thing I have, the working title is uh, Out of the Past series, um, which is a movie that would probably be in this <laughs> Out of the Past, the 1947 film uh, by Jacques Tourneur. And, uh, yeah, so I don't know if it'd be called that, but basically it's the greats, it's the goats, right? It's the, uh, these really great movies, at least to my standards, uh, these really great movies that I want to talk about and basically tell you why it's awesome. And so, uh, we will, I'm definitely doing some of that. I'm actually going to showcase that a little bit today with the movie that I chose, which is Terrence Malick's, uh, almost said there will be blood, uh, Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line. I will talk about that in a moment, but that will be kind of the, that will give you an example of what that column or that series or however you want to put it would be. I also want to do filmmaker retrospectives like we did with Ingmar Bergman a bit, but I'd like to do it a bit more compressed and then. Uh, genre retrospectives like I did with the film noir, which I still plan to do more parts of that. And I need to find a good way I want to go about that. So all that said, uh, the new formatting of this podcast will hopefully keep things more uh, concise, more efficient. Uh, quite frankly, just like they'll have more substance for you to kind of like get something out of it rather than us just talking. I'm sure, uh, I, I mean, I have gotten feedback where people are like, dude, I just like listening to you guys talk about movies. That's cool. And that will still be here. Um, but I'm trying to add just a little bit more because last week I was legit. I was so busy. I was kind of just rambling about these movies I'd rewatched and I was really working through the working on a top 100 films 
uh, of all time, my favorite ones, that is. And so, uh, yeah, I I don't know. I just felt really self-conscious about last week, and I thought, you know what? I'm reformatting. That's it. I'm going to do something different. Uh, I'm going to have some fun with this, and that is where we stand today. Now, uh, what we're about to go into is uh, my thoughts on The Thin Red Line, the Terrence Malick film uh, from 1998. This came out about six months after Saving Private Ryan, which is kind of the pinnacle of war movies for some people. But I often question if they've seen The Thin Red Line because I have a lot, a lot to say about this movie. Uh, so uh, this is going to be really fun. I actually rewatched this yesterday and was so blown away by it again that uh, this became the movie I was going to talk about this week. I had originally planned on doing On the Waterfront, actually, and I did a bunch of research for that, and I'll still do that one. Um, but then I rewatched this one, and I'm like, dude, there's no way I'm not doing this one first, like as at least a trial, you know, because there's just so much to get into with this movie. So my my goal is to try to offer more substance, try to uh, you know use some of the skills I've developed for the last 20 years, and you know try to bring you something worth listening to. So with all that said, without further ado, let's go see what I have to say about the great film. The Thin Red Line. The Thin Red Line from 1998, written and directed by Terrence Malick, based on the book The Thin Red Line by James Jones. The cast, which is way too insane and large for me to name, but I'll name quite a few. Jim Caviezel, Sean Penn, Nick Nolte, Adrian Brody, George Clooney, Ben Chaplin, John Cusack, Woody Harrelson, and too many more to name. Uh, I'm serious. Go go to IMDb and just look down the cast. And most of these people, it seems, not the ones I mentioned per se, but all the other ones are people that you know now, like Adrian Brody, for example, or Jim Caviezel, who had like little to no career prior to this movie. You know, this was the one that set off a lot of these guys, or at least gave them kind of some clout uh, to to move on in their in their careers. So uh, that said, it was released December twenty fifth, nineteen ninety eight. Great Christmas movie, I guess. <laughs> uh, I forgot about that. Uh, that was the limited release, but it had a wide release, January fifteenth, nineteen ninety nine. The budget was fifty two million dollars, which is fucking mind blowing. If you go watch this movie, I cannot believe this only cost $52 million. Um, When you look at other movies today that pale in comparison to the beauty of the Thin Red Line, and they're like six times the budget of this. But anyways, $52 million brought in a box office of 98.1, so just under uh, doubling its budget. And uh, it's currently not streaming anywhere that I found, but you can rent it through Amazon or, you know, other places you rent or buy movies online. Uh, Criterion Collection has a wonderful special edition of the film, which is the version that I watched. It is an incredible restoration of it, and uh, it looks absolutely stunning. The Thin Red Line tells the story of a group of men, an army rifle company called C for Charlie, who change, suffer, and ultimately make essential discoveries about themselves during the fierce World War II battle of Guadalcanal. 
It follows their journey from the surprise of an unopposed landing through the bloody and exhausting battles that follow uh, to the ultimate departure of those who survived. The insane cast, which, again, at the time, remember, is mostly made up of relative nobodies, um, explode into action in this hauntingly realistic view of military and moral chaos in the Pacific during World War II. Now, instead of continuing the synopsis, I will give a story instead. I was probably 14 years old, if I had to guess, and I was with my dad, and my dad showed me the opening Battle of Normandy sequence in Saving Private Ryan, uh, you know, which came out the same year as this, 1998, and it turned my stomach to say the least. I had never seen anything quite so intense and realistic in my life, and I thought it was so awesome, <laughs> uh, but it affected me greatly. You know, and, and fast forward a couple of years to when I'm 16 and the attack on, 9, uh, on the World Trade Centers and 9-11 uh, had just happened same day. And I'm talking to a family friend on the phone and the news was asking questions like, uh, you know, uh, will we have to bring back the draft, you know, et cetera. And I was terrified. I was only 16, but from the sound of it, it sounded like this war was going to go on for a long time. And that meant when I was 18, I could be drafted. And I was terrified of a potential draft. Now, I look back on this now and I see, I, I think of how ridiculous it was, you know, my reaction to such an unlikely situation. Uh, un not like I knew that that was unlikely, but it was an unlikely situation. And several years later, I saw the thin red line. And I thought back to the first time I saw Saving Private Ryan, that gruesome intro, introducing us into the horrors of war uh, to a completely grotesque uh, but really important extent. Um, and I remember after I saw the thin red line, you know, after thinking of that and, and my experience with 9-11 and being afraid of the draft, I related so deeply with the thin red line because I found myself asking similar questions, though maybe not so poetically, uh, as the soldiers in this Malik film. And I remember when the Thin Red Line came out, some of my friends said it was super boring. Uh, all they do is talk, which is not true. But still, there is a lot of uh, talking and voiceover and, and visual, like beautiful visuals. Uh, but I watched it as an adult, and I could not take my eyes away from the screen. For me, it was perfect. And, you know, once uh, I became 37 years old, like I am today, and now that I just rewatched it, the Thin Red Line is still perfect. And I'll tell you why. Now, let's start with Terrence Malick. There tends to be two camps, at least, <laughs> on Malick. Those who love him as an auteur and those, often actors but not exclusively, uh, who dislike him as a filmmaker. Now, why would people dislike this guy? Well, some questionable things have happened with Malik's post-production choices in the past, which has uh, now become an unspoken part of the agreement you take on to work with them nowadays. And uh, I'll share some of those things here. Now, when, when they were casting The Thin Red Line, Malik wanted, you know, largely a cast of people we wouldn't know. He wanted us to be able to believe in these people as being there from the time, and he knew that if you had pretty big names, sometimes that can detract from the effect that you're going for, which is true. So every actor in Hollywood and beyond was auditioning for this movie, or at least trying to get in. 
And I want to say it took him something like 13 months or something to go through the casting process, seeing as how they also had something like 126 speaking parts in the original script. So uh, actors like Brad Pitt, Al Pacino, Bruce Willis, Kevin Costner, Edward Norton, Nicolas Cage, Leonardo DiCaprio, Matthew McConaughey, Johnny Depp, and Ethan Hawke tried to get in, to name a few, uh, but none of which made the cut. And then there were some brought on for various reasons, such as Bill Pullman, Gary Oldman, Lucas Haas, uh, Viggo Mortensen, Martin Sheen, Jason Patrick, and Mickey Rourke, but none of them actually made it past the editing room floor. Now, Mickey Rourke is probably the second most heartbreaking story of the bunch. Uh, I'll share the first in a moment, but Rourke was uh, having troubles in Hollywood at the time. He was hoping to land a role in a film like... like uh, uh, I always want to say there will be blood, but uh, the thin red line, um, because he felt like this could elevate and kind of restart his career, kind of rebuild uh, some trust with the Hollywood elites. So Rourke uh, was actually in filmed scenes of, of the movie and uh, states that it was some of his best work. Uh, the best work up to that point, at the very least. And apparently, he had some very personal things going on in his life, and Malik worked it into his character so it could be even more believable. Now, I can find uh, you can find an outtake in the supplements uh, area on the Criterion Collection release of the film, uh, but Rourke was completely cut out of the film other than that one outtake. Uh, so this obviously hurt Rourke. But the biggest situation like this, uh, and a largely no-named actor at the time, Adrian Brody, uh, is who this happened to. It was, uh, unfortunately, uh, another World War II-era movie that put him on the map, and that is Roman Polanski's The Pianist from 2002. But why did it take four years for Adrian Brody to become Adrian Brody? Because Brody came in to the cast as the main character of the book, Private Fife, and thought he was the main character of the movie, which uh, apparently, um, you know, everything kind of pointed toward this. The original script, everything. He was the lead, as far as he was, as far as everyone was concerned, from my understanding. He was not informed prior to press junkets and the premiere that his main scenes had all but uh, been cut out, and that he was essentially a background character now. And Jim Caviezel's private wit ended up being edited in as the new focused kind of kind of main character. If you'd say any of the characters are the main character, he'd probably be it. This was a devastating and awkward position to put Brody in, of course, and I totally feel for him here. I mean, this really sucks to say the least, um, and it's not really a great practice. Uh, but there are many stories like this on the Thidren line and beyond. In my mind, I would consider this poor procedure at the very least. Um, but then I see the film and realize why many people like myself regard Terrence Malick as one of the great auteurs. Now, again, I'm not trying to excuse that certain people were led to believe that they were one thing in the film and ended up being edited into a different thing. But let's talk a bit more about this. Now, Malik is a Harvard graduate with a bachelor's degree in philosophy, and he started uh, but never finished a two-year master's degree in philosophy at the University of Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. And uh, if that's not enough, Malik also taught philosophy at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and he is a heady guy, um, and he shines, you know, it shines 
in the forefront of his films, you know, at the forefront, uh, you see that headiness that uh, that Malik possesses. And I think this ties into why people love or hate him. Honestly, uh, his process seems to be tied to his philosophy of life. Now, I'm going to put a pin in the love-hate stuff really quickly to be continued, but Malik is no slouch, and his films are less traditional movies, and by their very nature are art films, especially when they are less narrative-focused and more experiential and interpretive. Uh, no one person will likely have the exact same reading of these films, especially those from The Thin Red Line uh, on, you know, everything after Days of Heaven, basically. Um, but... Uh, I don't think anyone's going to have the same interpretation as someone else. Uh, his films largely ask questions that are never answered, giving the viewer the opportunity to think on these questions um, and project them onto the characters asking them. And in The Thin Red Line, Malik, you know, likes to wrestle with the problem of evil, a philosophical idea that, uh, for example, would be something like, if God is good, then why does evil exist? That would be you know, the problem of evil kind of uh, idea in, 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 uh, in philosophy. So, uh, you know, that would be a problem of evil question. And the Thin Red Line tackles these ideas and ties them directly into concepts of war, being a soldier, existentialism, etc. So there is a voiceover that uh, delivers the following lines. This great evil, where does it come from? How did it steal into the world? What seed, what root did it grow from? Does our ruin benefit the earth? Does it help the grass to grow and the sun to shine? Is this darkness in you too? And these questions at their root, uh, no pun intended, I guess, uh, are similar to what I was asking back in 2001 on 9-11. You know, these are... I would argue the questions we struggle with in these moments of existential crisis and grief, trauma at the end of life, we may not word them this way and we may not use these exact questions, but in one way or another, we either ask ourselves or avoid these sorts of questions in an attempt to escape them because they're hard questions to wrestle with. And quite frankly, in many cases, they will not have uh, answers that we will that will suffice our curiosity. Okay, so I, I find this absolutely fascinating. This sort of Socratic questioning, for all intents and purposes, uh, can give one something to wrestle with. And I feel like I learn something about myself every time I watch a Malik film, and the thin red line is chief among them. And I, I think those who love him as an auteur. And also those who, you know, weren't screwed by him in a starring role <laughs> uh, love him because of these experiential immersive qualities, because they are unique to him. And you can watch something like a Christopher Nolan movie, take Memento or The Prestige, for example, and you will find Malick in them. For sure, he is very influential, and maybe not so blatantly, say, in Memento and the Prestige. It may not be like an absolute blatant, uh, like, ripoff, quote-unquote, quote unquote, but you definitely will see the subtle homage to the great Terrence Malick. And I can see it immediately in those two films I mentioned by Nolan. The ways Nolan plays with flashbacks and memories. He is a filmmaker that uh, loves Malick. 
and Malik is a filmmaker that we deserve to be challenged by. And The Thin Red Line, like many of Malik's films, is essentially an experiential poem. It is an it is endlessly interpretive. It is uh, inherently meaningful. And his films end up this way because of his process, which, for better or for worse, is done in the editing room. Yep. Malik's movies are created in post-productions. Uh, post-productions, plural. <laughs> Probably for him, it takes forever. But uh, they're created in post-production. And I think we should uh, give editors Leslie Jones, Sarkline, and Billy Weber a standing ovation for making this film possible. Malik is not one to overwatch his movies, uh, and apparently it was like pulling teeth to get him to watch it once all the way through. The editing team created a five-and-a-half-hour cut for Malik, and they basically forced him to watch it, so he did. And from then on, Malik edited the footage one reel at a time with the sound off, apparently listening to Green Day. <laughs> he just had Green Day playing in there. Apparently, he's on a Green Day kick at that point in 1990, whenever that was, 96 or 7 at that point. His mentality was that he wanted to cut anything that did not lead him to wonder, what are they saying? So if he saw people talking and it was intriguing enough for him to wonder, it was kept. And of course, if he was just like, I don't care what they're saying, like this is telling the story itself visually, then he would cut it. He apparently filmed most, if not every scene that had dialogue once through with dialogue and then another time with no dialogue, just the, just the actors acting out the scene. And this gave Malik footage to work with later in post in case he chose to put voice over there or, you know, whatever the case may be. Malik also filmed the scenes in three different ways, uh, uh, or at least three different types of light, natural lighting, I should say. Uh, full sun, meaning like the sun is out hitting the people. Overcast, where the sun is not out, but it's just, you know, you know what overcast is. And then during the magic hour, which is that time nearing sunset where the lighting is just perfect. It's just the best. This was so he could decide in the editing room which light worked best for which scene. And this kind of, and he could mix stuff around, of course. This kind of seemingly flippant filmmaking, albeit meticulous for Malik, really frustrated you know, some people like composers who are trying to make a score but have no idea how to compose something that could be completely different later, or producers who have to, you know, talk to Malik, uh, you know, in the way that he's thinking when it clearly differs from most, etc. Christopher Plummer, the famous actor, uh, absolutely great, uh, and in a different interview, Colin Farrell as well, discussed their time on another Malick film, The New World, which I might talk about at some point because it's also incredible, where uh, Malick would see nature, like the sun beaming through the foliage or a bird perched on a branch, and he would just stop fil filming performances to capture this nature occurring. You know, like you would just, I mean, it was just like, uh, you know, in, in Up, the Pixar movie where the dog is like, squirrel! Um, that's how people actually discuss Malik, where they're just like, wait, 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 wait one minute. And then he just starts shooting in the sky, watching birds fly by or something, you know. This was very frustrating for the performers who were giving it their all, and they were great, uh, but kept getting cut off or distracted by Malik's lack of attention. These nature shots are a signature part of his films, though, and I can see both sides of it. The actors need to be able to do their jobs, and they need it to be set up in a way so they can do that. 
But Malik, who is really not particularly interested in singular performances, but rather how the entire thing is put together, he's interested in capturing the rare in-the-moment occurrences because he can recreate or edit later the scenes the way that he wants them. Anyways, Malik is polarizing. We get it. And both sides of the coin have plenty of valid evidence uh, to reinforce their feelings, but... I don't know if anyone can effectively argue that the end product of Malik's film is a unique experience. No one can argue against that. Regardless of whether one likes it, uh, it is undeniably Malik. I'm talking about the thin red line here. Steven Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan came out about six months prior to the thin red line. And whereas I would argue Saving Private Ryan is about the sacrifice of men, the brotherhood forged in battle, and the film you know, gives us an unabashed look at the horrors of their shared experiences, the Thin Red Line shows us less of war and invites us into the minds of these characters. So basically, Saving Private Ryan is external, whereas the Thin Red Line feels internal. Consider the scene in Saving Private Ryan where we watch Adam Goldberg's Private Mellish fight with a German soldier hand-to-hand while his ally, Corporal Upham, is uh, so stricken with fear as he's trying to climb the stairs to uh, help his friend or see what's going on that he cannot get to the fight before the German soldier slowly puts a knife through Private Mellish's heart. This is an incredibly intense sequence. I mean, absolutely heart-wrenching. One that sticks with me to this day. And every time I watch it, I feel a whole lot of feelings. I mean, what a horror. Now, conversely, in The Thin Red Line, we see a scene where Nick Stahl's private bead uh, is dying from a wound that we did not see him take. Get, whatever the word is. He looks up to the camera, or he looks up, and the camera cuts to the sun in the sky through the trees, The last thing Private Bede sees is something we see every day. The sky through the trees. There is uh, nothing special about his death, nothing unique. He just expires. And the process of death in these films is very different. And I only uh, make the comparison between Saving Private Ryan and The Thin Red Line because they're often pitted against each other uh, pretty much for no other reason than they both came out the same year. They're both great. I love both of these movies, but even little cutaway shots, such as a dead Japanese soldier completely covered in dirt with the exception of his eyes and nose and maybe a little bit of his lips showing, uh, you know, we see, we sit with this image and we we see this lifeless uh, body void of life and it's extremely powerful. Something that, Saving Private Ryan could never do. And, of course, you could say many things vice versa. But these things I find completely incomparable to to any other movie. But I've talked enough about Malick, those who love and hate him and why. Uh, Now I want to discuss some personal reasons why I think this movie is absolutely so great. The film starts with a crocodile slowly moving into the water. We learn uh, from the very beginning that this is a film... Uh, showing that nature is instinctive, it's raw, it's alive, it's a dangerous animal. But humans have free will and are cursed with that burden of choice. And even the end uh, of the film, Nick Nolte's uh, Lieutenant Colonel Tall says, look at, the j- look at that jungle, look at those vines strangling everything. Nature is cruel. And this sums up the film. 
You know, you spend 170 minutes watching these innocent young men or boys, as many of the higher ranked officers call them, as they are sent from a civilized, safe and familiar reality, that of living in America, in their homes. uh, And, uh, you know, they are taken to nature or into danger. Now, I love the voiceovers in Malik films, uh, but this one is up there among the best, if not the best. Uh, Some soldiers think of their mothers and their wives or lovers back home. They ask questions in their voiceovers that interject interject rather unexpected meaning to their lives. No one character matters more than another, really. This is a this is visual poetry. This is personal, no matter you know, how different the persons watching it are, uh, this film is personal, not unlike The Tree of Life, which you would make, um, what is that, 13 years later or something like that? Um, I absolutely adore Malik's approach here with The Thin Red Line. This is uh, this has always been my favorite film of his. As I rewatch his movies, we will see if that changes. And the music is absolutely iconic as well. It's super influential. Hans Zimmer, uh, the man who brought us you know, some of the more popular scores of the last two decades, including Black Hawk Down, the Nolan Batman trilogy, and Inception, which are two, uh, are really four movies that really have uh, popular soundtracks. Um, 12 Years a Slave, Interstellar, Dunkirk, so basically a lot of Nolan movies. He didn't do 12 Years a Slave, but, you know, they're like most of the ones I've mentioned are him. Uh, but more recently, also did Dune, um, no Time to Die, the Bond movie, and Top Gun Maverick, which were some pretty popular movies that have come out in the last couple years. Uh, the dude is everywhere, Hans Zimmer. Just go look at his credits. It's crazy. But the score of The Thin Red Line, namely the piece titled Journey to the Line, has been incredibly influent, influential. Uh, I was actually listening to it today, and it makes me feel so many feelings just listening to that song. And I believe Nolan even said that uh, he heard that score. I might be mixing him up. He might have just said this about someone else. I can't remember. But I remember Nolan, uh, I'm pretty sure, said that he heard that score, that specific piece, and wanted his film films to feel the way that that song does, which is obviously clear because Journey to the Line is almost identical to some of the Batman scores. Um it is incredibly moving and a perfect fit with the content we see unravel before our eyes in the thin red line. But part of that perfection is not musical. It's actually thanks to cinematographer John Toll, responsible for the camera work in such films as uh, Almost Famous, The Last Samurai, Gone, Baby Gone, which is super great, by the way, uh, and The Matrix Resurrections, most recently, just to name a few. Uh, But in The Thin Red Line, we see him at his best by far, in my view. Uh, The way the camera moves through the tall grass or the shots of the sky through dilapidated structures, the close-ups of soldiers army crawling through a war zone. I mean, it is undeniably Malick's vision, but captured by this man, John Toll. So kudos to him. Now, the locations are magical, shooting mostly in Australia, something uh, about the way everything sits in the world transports us to another reality, or maybe just another time. Honestly, it is a timeless beauty. I wish I could see through Malik's eyes sometimes, because he finds beauty in everything. The last thing I want to touch on uh, about the Thin Red Line is the scene where Ben Chaplin's private bell receives a letter from his wife. 
And in the letter, his wife says that since the time that he's been gone, basically, and I'm paraphrasing, it's worded way more poetically and awesome. Uh, but for the time he's been gone, she's been really lonely and she's tried to love him, but she grew fond uh, of an Air Force pilot that she wishes to marry. Uh, but she needs a divorce. She needs uh private bell to grant her a divorce now this is a time uh in in our you know civilization where uh women could not just divorce a man um or a woman cannot divorce a man but rather the man had to approve it essentially so private bell's wife you know asks him for the divorce and up to this point someone could watch this and be like what a bitch like like you know she's leaving him while he's at war that's so shitty but there's so much more to this okay largely because of how malik plays it out we hear the wife in malik voiceover style read uh, the letter in voiceover a narration so to speak as we watch private bell react and he holds back tears. At a different point, he looks like he's going to be sick. And then he kind of laughs in disbelief. And uh, his body can't stand still, so he has to move and kind of pace. He looks around in confusion, trying to process this letter. And all the while, we hear, Oh, my friend, of all those shining ears, help me leave you. And somehow... This is the most heart-wrenching moment of the film for me. I mean, it brought me to tears. This moment where she so sincerely and warmly says these words, not as a mean, hateful person, but as one also grieving the loss of their love. And all of this, after we hear Private Bell narrate earlier in the film, why should I be afraid to die? I belong to you, speaking of his wife in memory. If I go first, I'll wait for you there, on the other side of the dark waters. Be with me now. The divorce letter absolutely kills me, okay? I mean, this part of the film is, is really heavy, and it's that line, help me leave you, that is absolutely stunning to me. This is uh, The Thin Red Line. It is absolutely a five-star film and one of, if not the best war film ever made, in my view. Uh, I strongly encourage you to check this out if you haven't seen it. I hope you've enjoyed this talk. I will be right back when I send you off. Okay, so maybe 10 to 20 minutes for a single film, especially if they're as, you know, uh, just rich and have such a good, like, kind of history and interesting little tidbits. Maybe I need a little more time, all right? But I think if I'm only going to be talking about this one film, I think this is actually a pretty good time because we're going to end up somewhere around, uh, you know, uh, 38 to 40 minutes-ish, somewhere around there. So thank you guys so much for listening. Let me know on social media, email me, whatever, at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com or mediumcoolpod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Let me know. Shoot me a DM or whatever. Let me know what you think of this uh, formatting for solo shows. I'm going to try to keep this up. I think this is far more interesting. It's also really nice for me to do research again and really kind of dig in and learn more about movies myself. Uh, that was an absolute blast. So thank you so much for listening. And uh, hey, Next week is episode 100. What the fuck? How have I been doing this that long? This is really exciting for me because, uh, yeah, it's been a couple years now. And um, I don't know. This is like a really special thing for me. So definitely come check out next week's 
uh, episode 100. We're going to have some fun things there for you. But all of that said, I want to thank you guys for listening. I love you, and good night, good luck, and take it easy. <laughs>